You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. I'm very pleased to welcome Graham Beat to the podcast today. Graham is the current course manager at Royal Port Rush Golf Club. He originally hails from St Andrews in Scotland and was originally introduced to greenkeeping at Scots Craig Golf Club before moving on in turn to Kings Barnes, Royal Melbourne, Castle Dargan, County Sligo, and finally to his current position at Royal Port Rush. Over the course of our chat, we take a look at Graham's career journey thus far. Needless to say, focusing primarily on the before, during, and after periods that straddled the 148th Open Championships, which were held at Royal Port Rush in July 2019. I've been fortunate to play a number of open road courses, and Port Rush for me is the very best that I've seen. If you've yet to play it, you simply must put the Dunluce and indeed the Valley courses on your bucket list. Many thanks to Graham for his time. We really do hope that you enjoy our chat. Hi, Graham. You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. How is all on the Causeway Coast? Uh, thanks for having me, Shane. Uh, everything's going well at the moment. Uh, I think we're in for a bit of nasty weather next week, but we've had a good winter so far. Yeah, I heard there's some snow on the way, potentially, and you're more likely to get it up on the North Coast than we are in Dublin, so best of luck. Thank you. <laughs> I believe you're just back from Royal Troon and an RNA Open Rota gathering. How did your trip go? Uh, very well, thanks. Yeah, it was uh, jam-packed. Um, so the RNA had organised lots of speakers and things, and they hosted um, they hosted the event. So yeah, it was really good. It's interesting. Um, was information about how the RNA see the open progressing and all that sort of stuff. So it was it was it was excellent. It was really well run. And did you get an opportunity to bring the sticks with you, or was it just a uh, a talking and catching up gig? Unfortunately, it was a flying visit. Next time, I haven't played Trun before. Uh, we dropped into Prestwick and had a coffee there. Okay. Um, Dave Edmondson, who was at the island um, before, he's at Prestwick now. That's right, yeah. So yeah, I had a good chat with Dave, caught up with him, and then uh, went over to Trun. Have they still got the old holes in the ground or have they grown back over at this stage and now they opened? Uh... I don't think so. We were kind of only had time to be around the clubhouse, but um, just looking out on the course, it looked great, really tidy. Um, I'm sure Dave will do a great job there. Well, listen, we're just at the start of March. There I am again, dating this particular podcast. But anyway, as we said, the weather is warming up, but it may be warming down a little bit next week. I trust that both the Dunluce and the Valley courses are coming out of the winter hibernation in rude health. Did you have any significant winter works on the go this year? Uh, We had a little bit, a few bits and pieces on Dunluce. Um, The last, I suppose, since the Open, we've done quite a lot of work to the Valley in terms of greenkeeping and, and sort of general tidying up ourselves. Um, this winter, we did a little bit of construction on Dunluce. Um, small things, I suppose, lots of little jobs, but things that will make the golf course better uh, for members and visitors and some of it for the Open as well. Okay. 
as I've already alluded to, you currently hold the position of course manager at Port Rush Golf Club. Over the course of our conversation today, I hope to take you down a little, sorry, a trip, a little trip down memory lane to learn about your circuitous route from St Andrews to the north coast of Ireland with a few interesting detours along the way. The opening question has to lead us back to your first memories of golf around the East Nuke of Fife. What are some of those early memories? I think, well, I got into golf because of, well, partly my parents, but my uncle as well. He was a good golfer. He was a county golfer. Um, he had cut down a set of clubs for me uh, to get started. And um, I joined Scott's Craig Golf Club when I was 10. That was my local golf club. Uh, so they've got a real rich history. Um, it was founded in 1818. Uh, so it's one of the oldest clubs in the world, but... I just remember playing there uh, growing up as a junior and the golf courses weren't that busy then. Uh, you know, we'd get dropped off in the morning for summer holidays and then picked up at night and you'd have a couple of pounds to spend and seemed to just do. Uh, but we used to play, used to play the course in the morning, go to the practice ground, sp spend a few hours there and then we'd go uh, maybe play the course cross country and make up our own holes. Um, but it was great. Um, absolutely loved golf. Uh, sort of grew up dreaming of being a tour pro. Um, and then my cousin, I, I think I got to 14 or 15, and my cousin was the accountant for Elmwood College, and she'd suggested greenkeeping. And I sort of thought, why would I want to do that? Um, and then when I was old enough, I, I got a summer job at the golf course and absolutely loved it. And that was me kind of hooked on greenkeeping from then, really. So it's the summer job at Scott's Craig that started in 1995. Yeah. What motivated you? I mean, obviously, you mentioned that your relative was working in Elmo College. Was that really the motivating factor to initially explore the sports turf world? Or was any, anybody else whispering into your ear and, and, and leading you in that particular direction? Well, I was still sort of looking down the road of actually playing the game. Um, and then I kind of realized I wasn't probably good enough and I think my handicap was low enough to, to sort of uh, maybe get an assistant professionals job but I, I didn't really fancy kind of the that sort of life I was kind of an outdoors person I was always outdoors doing something playing football or playing golf or just anything um, and yeah I just think the experience of actually doing it um, I just loved it and being around the golf course and um, just being out there, I, I just found it great. Yeah, so you found your vocation, as it were. I think so, yeah. <laughs> Happy days. It's great when that happens because work doesn't necessarily feel like work. It feels like uh, just uh, having, having, having fun and doing what you should be doing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Having been bitten by the greenkeeping bug, obviously, Graham, what educational steps did you take initially on your journey in turf? Uh, so I worked the summer at I worked the summer at Scotts Craig, and then I went to Elmwood College and did the one year greenkeeping course, um, and then I got a full time job at Scotts Craig again in '96, um, and then I think I did another year and a half maybe, and then I signed up for the HNC. Mm -hmm. It's like a one day one day uh, a week release uh, for two years. And then I completed that 
And then just as I completed that, I, I moved on to Kings Barnes. And that was the year 2000, yeah, from memory. Yeah, it was early 2000. Yeah, it was still uh, it was coming towards the end of the construction phase and it was more growing. Okay. So a little bit of both. Um, but that, that was amazing. That was like just so different to my sort of, you know, the, the, the normal golf club uh, that I'd come from. Um, there were no members. There was like this massive push on to get the golf course finished for, for the Open at St Andrews in 2000. Um, and yeah, there's just a real buzz about it. And, and because it was brand new, and because we were all so, such a big part of getting the golf course ready, everyone had a real ownership for it. Um, you really felt like uh, sort of you, you kind of a bit of it was yours, if you know what I mean. Excellent, excellent. And if I'm right, I think the the following year, 2001, was the first year of the reimagined Alfred Dunhill Lynx Championship, which obviously replaced the Alfred Dunhill Cup. Yeah. Was this event your first exposure to a, a high-level European Tour event? Yeah, I suppose it was. Uh, my first season at Scott's Craig, we'd had the Open qualifying. Uh, so Justin Rose was trying to qualify. I think that was his first one. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd had to meet his family and show him around the golf course. I was junior captain at the time. <laughs> so I'd spent the day with him for that. But that was like, that was a big thing for us. Um, and I went to the Open in 95 um, as a junior. And yeah, the Dunhill was a big thing for us. Uh-huh. And just the time of year it's played, it's, it's pretty tricky for setting up a tournament. And I'd never really experienced that before. Um, we were sort of mowing greens with floodlights and things like that. But it was really exciting. Uh, it was that was probably good practice for uh, you, you getting the West of Ireland Championships up and running so early <laughs> in in in, uh, in Ross's Point, but we'll get to that in due course. I've heard you mention colleagues Stuart McCalm and Innes Knight as turfies that you looked up to when you got to Kings Barnes. Other than their focus on fine detail and perfection, what other good habits do you think you picked up from the aforementioned gentlemen? I think just customer experience. You know, that probably relates to attention to detail as well. Um, I think their professionalism was really good. Um, But those were the big things really for me. Um, To come from a a golf club where the standards were quite good to go to Kings Barnes, where it was just like exceptional. Um, And I think completing every task to your best ability um, I think that was really a big sort of, I suppose it left a mark on me sort of thing to to sort of see that side of it. Um, and as I said, we were all kind of in it together, um, and we were all we were all part of getting that standard to where where it had to be um, so quickly. Um, so I think that was really a big thing for me with with the two of them. Um, Stuart was a real stickler for timekeeping as well, um, which I, I, I do remember he was, that was his, that was his big bugbear. <laughs> which Stuart should always try to be five minutes early than as opposed to five minutes late, but the sense. Exactly. Yep. It's a, it's a good habit to be in anyway, isn't it? That's with me as well, yeah. 
while you were at King's Barnes, you got the opportunity to do some travelling. And I understand that you spent four months or so on the Greens team at Royal Melbourne. How did that opportunity materialise? Um, we'd had a guy from Royal Melbourne, Simon Miller. He's now at Dunes Links. Um, he was involved with Cape Wickham as well. He'd come over to us uh, to work a, a season um, and I'd sort of got friendly with him and one of the greenkeepers from King's Barnes had gone over, over to Royal Melbourne to work there for the season. So that was kind of the start of an exchange programme. Um, and I just fancied it. I just fancied the change. I fancied experience in kind of warmer season grasses and the management of it. Um, so I, I decided to write to the RNA. I uh, wrote them a nice letter. Um, they called me in for a meeting. It turned out they knew my uncle as well, uh, so that might have been a help. But um, they offered to pay my flights um, over in return for me writing some reports based on the sort of management of the the turf over there and the Heineken Classic over there as well. So I ended up, I wrote two reports for them based around, one based around the Heineken Classic and the preparations and, and the way the tournament was run and also around the comparisons of turf management between Australia and ourselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it was a great experience. Amazing. Did you find the adjustment between warm and cool season grasses difficult to get your head around or is it as, uh, or how how did you find it? Because obviously they're predominantly cooch and, and I know the, the Sutton's, Sutton's mix, et cetera, et cetera. And there's a little bit of fescue as well, but predominantly the, the warm season grasses would obviously be the, your Santa Ana cooches or your, uh, your Bermuda. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I suppose it was a stark contrast really. Uh, I'd gone over there and they were scarifying fairways on, I think it might've been on the East. Mm-hmm. They were quite thatchy, and the, the amount of material they removed mm-hmm. uh, loaded into a lorry and, and taken away. Was that the phrase mowing that they do in terms of just uh, having a right out go at the uh, at the plant yeah. in the ground? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's phenomenal, isn't it? Phenomenal, and the recovery is just just turned the water on. And but as you say, there's so much bloody material. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I couldn't get my head around that, and then. There's a lot of tea tree and eucalyptus and any sort of wind at all, and it was just blown to pieces. Um, so I worked with the tree surgeons quite a bit, just helping them clean up and, and all that sort of stuff. Uh, the bunkering over there, I just couldn't get over how good it is. It's just amazing. Um, the firmness of the greens as well, that was something that really sort of stood out, I think. Um, they were spraying all the time. Yeah. I think... Any warm season climate, there's there's so many more bugs and diseases and things than we encounter over here. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's just it was really interesting just to to sort of compare and contrast. And in terms of timing, um, I know Richard Forsyth is the current course superintendent over there. Did you have an opportunity to work with Richard while you were at Royal Melbourne? No, I didn't. I was working with uh, Jim Porter um, at that time. Um, Funny, we've just set up an exchange program with Royal Melbourne, so I've been sort of dealing with email and Richard Forsyth quite a bit back backwards and forwards. Um, so we have a greenkeeper over there at the moment, mm-hmm. and it was just something that we wanted to do for for our greenkeepers' experience and also for for some of the Australian guys to to experience the European links. Mm-hmm. 
Um, I think it's just such a such a good experience for me. I just felt like um, I'd like to sort of offer that for for our own sort of young staff that are, that want to gain a bit of experience too. No, for sure. I mean, I, that experience of, of of soaking in the spirit of Dr. Mack and Alec Russell, Mick Morecambe, and obviously Claude Crockford, their memories and, and, and experiences kind of reverberate throughout the Royal Melbourne paddocks. Is there anything particularly that strikes you as the main components that Royal Melbourne get right as a course and a club that you've perhaps taken on to your further career? It's a tricky one. Um as I say, I, I love the bunker in. I think it just makes the golf course, um, just makes it so good. Um, the nature of their sand, i said before, the firmness of the greens was just unbelievable. Um, and I'm not sure that that's something we can really replicate, but um, I think it's just, I don't know really how to answer. I, I think... Um, I don't know that there's a massive amount relates to the likes of Royal Port Rush. You know, we don't have much scrub. We, our bunkers are far different. The bunkers maybe don't play such a part in the the golf course here. Um, but I do remember the presentation was amazing and it just seemed like a really nice club with a, a good atmosphere. You made it back to Scotland after your your performance away, and 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 then subsequently would move on to take on your first course manager position at Castle Dargan in County Sligo. Uh, Darren Clark and Patrick Merrigan design collaboration. I guess after four or five years there, you moved down the road to become a superintendent at County Sligo Golf Club. Yeah. Ross's Point, of course, has a cult and Allison heritage, and has been home of the West of Ireland Championship since the first staging in 1923. The West represents the traditional Easter time beginning of major amateur elite competition in Ireland. How challenging was, and in fact is, it to prepare a course for the West in the early part of the growing season? Because we're talking Easter and sometimes Easter is, is really early. It's a little bit later this year, I suppose. Yeah. But what challenges does that represent to the likes of your good self beavering away, to trying to get it, uh, trying to get it in, in the best condition possible for an early start? Um, it's not that easy. <laughs> um, you're kind of thinking of it from probably November time. Um, and it limits you to what you can actually do to the greens through the winter time. Uh, you're sort of nursing them through the winter, knowing that you've got north, uh, the west of Ireland, sorry, uh, really early, sometimes in March. Um, and also... When the West comes along, if it is sort of March time, you haven't had any growth. Um, the greens are a little bit sparse, so you can't do an awful lot to them. Otherwise, they get a bit out of control with green speed. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, obviously, Sligo's a pretty windy place. Um, and I think just to have them... in good condition going into it you're not able to do a massive amount of mowing and rolling and all that sort of stuff to that you would normally do to get the, the surfaces up to a standard that you'd like um but yeah i think just just kind of gentle management over the winter was the, the sort of best approach for me i think okay I, I know pat Roddy was engaged by county sligo to carry out some improvements to the course in 2013 were you still at ross's at the time pat arrived with his equipment and his revitalization plans um it was just kind of a transition um 
I was just, I suppose I was just going out the door as Pat Ruddy was coming in. Um, I was there for maybe a week of diggers being on site and things. Um, so I wasn't really that involved. Mark Miller had come in and he'd taken over for me not long after I had left. Um, so he's carried out most of the, the construction work um, along with the local contractor and Pat Ruddy. Mm-hmm. You know, as a complete aside, it's uh, it's funny you mentioned Mark there, small world. I was down in Carn Golf Club in Belmullet before Christmas with Ali McIntosh and bumped yep. into Mark. So uh, a, a, a good lad. I believe he's uh, yeah. he's still in, he's still involved in, in some way or other in a, a consultancy basis up in uh, up in Rosses. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He works um, as he says a consultancy, but consultancy basis. He does um, he does a few days a week there, I think, and does some of his own stuff as well. Believe yeah. busy. Yeah, yeah. No, he was down uh, down doing some construction on the the T block behind the clubhouse. They've uh, they've done a big job down there and sort of pared away a, a dune for Phil and whatnot. So it's actually it's it's really 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 nice job. I have to say, I saw some uh, some aerials of it last week. Maybe if we move on to the main event, as it were, obviously Port Rush, and I believe you started there in November 2014. I'm interested first of all to understand what your first thoughts were when you heard that Joe Finlay decided to retire from his course manager position at Royal Portrush after 26 years and that there might be a job going up on the North Coast? I suppose, firstly, I loved Ross's point. I loved Sligo. We'd been there for over eight years. Um, had some really good friends there, but I, just, I couldn't really not apply for the job in Portrush. Um, the chance to host an Open Championship and... I suppose it's just such an amazing golf course. Golf courses, both of them, uh, great site um, with lots of potential as well. So, yeah, I'd, um, if I'm honest, I, I thought I, m- I maybe had a chance of getting it. I feel really lucky, privileged that I did manage to get the job. Um, so, yeah, everything's worked out really nicely, to be honest. Uh, my kids were at a good age as well. They were only one and four. Brilliant, okay. Well, it just all worked out really nicely. And then, needless to say, the open project or, or uh, an effort to uh, to once again host the Open Championship had begun some years before you came on board. A long time in coming, obviously, prior to the arrival of the 148th hosting uh, in 2019, it had been 68 years since Max Faulkner secured the Claret Jug. Uh, in 1951. The peace dividend, the Good Friday Agreement and storm and power sharing were all waypoints on the journey towards an eventual RNA announcement pertaining to Port Rush and a return to the Open Championship hosting duties. I know the first major step was to prove to the RNA that the course could host a European tour event um, and to this end the 2012 Irish Open was held at Royal Port Rush won by Jamie Donaldson of Wales. Needless to say the successful hosting uh, of this event um, really proved to the important stakeholders that the course could hold an event of that nature. There obviously would be some significant impediments pertaining to logistics, traffic, course facilities, etc. Before we get into some questions about member and stakeholder engagement and the development of the vision for a new version of Royal Port Rush, we might just touch on some of the challenges that needed to be addressed to optimise the site for open hosting duties. What were those main challenges? I, th- I think the real 
I think the real turning point for Port Rush was when Peter Dawson visited um, for the Irish Open and walked the course. And I think he was the real positive person behind um, behind it all. And I think he had contacted the club and contacted Martin Ebert um, and said, like, we really want to do this. Um, the, the problem was finding enough space, really, for, for hospitality, uh, which meant that the, the 17th and 18th at the time uh, had to become tented village. Um, and the, the plans, I suppose, the open keeps growing. <laughs> it's get, getting bigger and bigger. Um, and we're even finding that now for, for the next time, we're going to have to find an, a little bit more space. Um, but the when I, I suppose when I started in Royal Portrush, the plans were already in place. They hadn't been approved yet. Um, they were being shown in the council room uh, for the members to go and view. And the 17th and 18th were to be removed. That was going to become Tented Village. Um, some of the holes were going to be extended to create a bit more length, um, which meant there was kind of a knock-on effect. The Dunluce changed, which meant the valley had to change, which meant the, the sort of par three short course had to change as well. Um, I suppose take, you take a bit of land from somewhere and then you have to find it somewhere else. As you pointed out, Mackenzie and Ebert were appointed as consulting yeah. architects in 2013 and would develop and implement an improvement plan that would encompass quite a lot of work. So seven new holes, two in the Dunluce, now the seventh and the eighth, in addition to three in the valley. 34 tees, 22 bunkers, two miles of road, 18 miles of pipe and ducting, not to mention water, sewage, services, fibre, etc., etc., we, we can sort of fast forward maybe to Friday the 29th of August in 2014. The members of Royal Portrush convened for a special general meeting at the Maraboy Hotel in Portrush of the 237 members that attended the meeting. All but two of those present voted in favour of the, of the proposals. The journey to the 148th Open had begun in earnest. If I've done my research properly, you started in Royal Push, Port Rush in November 2014, which probably means that you were working your notice period at Kenny Lago by the time the members' vote took place. I can imagine that there were a not insignificant number of trips between Sligo and Port Rush to schedule during this handover period. Would that be a fair reflection? Uh, yes. <laughs> so, so, so you wore you wore a furrow in the road, in other words, between Sligo and Port Rush. I would suspect. Yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I was up and down a few times. Yeah, um, they are neighbour back and forwards for meetings. So I was, I was going to attend um, a meeting every so often, and just the scale of the discussions um, is kind of mind blowing, really, um, and. For me, it was kind of a, a I suppose, a, a sink or swim moment when you, you know, you start, and we were more or less straight into construction plans, and then construction started in July 2015. Um, and yeah, it was uh, maybe five di five diggers and three dumpers and all sorts of kit all over the site. So just managing that was difficult, um, and. The golf courses were still sort of fully booked and um, we were still taking visitors and all that sort of stuff. So um, it 
it was a busy start and it didn't slow down much uh, for a few good few years. Um, but an amazing challenge. For any listeners that haven't been to Port Rush yet, how would you characterise the site that the Dunluce and the Valley courses sit gently upon? I think it, it for me, it sits so well in its environment. Um, both courses, I think they're really natural. Um, I love the way the bunkers and all the shapes kind of tie together. Um, you know, some sometimes you'd see a golf course where something's kind of perched there and it maybe doesn't sit naturally in its own environment. Um, I think Port Rush. I just think it fits so well with the surroundings. You must really have to pinch yourself sometimes as you tootle around in your Tara Workman or, tri- or Triplex. You, you must have one of the best jobs in the world from a greenkeeping perspective. Yeah, I think I think we all do. Uh, I think anyone that works there, and I think most greenkeepers probably are the same. You know, such an enjoyable job most of the time. Um, mm-hmm. Not always, but uh, yeah, I, I, I feel really lucky. I do. Given all of that bill of works that we just mentioned, or I just mentioned a few minutes ago, and I believe that the site, the Port, Royal Port Rush Golf Club site, is, is on a site essentially governed by national heritage. If that's the case, I'm assuming you had an ecologist keeping a watching brief as uh, the works progressed. Uh, yep, yeah, we had uh, Bob Taylor. We had Bob Taylor, who worked for the ST- STRI at the time, um, He's independent now and he's the RNA's ecologist. He had done a massive file on, of work on breeding bird surveys and botanical surveys and every survey you can imagine um, as part of the planning process. Um, he was sort of on site regularly throughout the whole construction process as well. Uh, we had archaeologists on site checking the site for anything of importance as well. Um, Every, I, I just I came I came to Royal Port Rush and I was just so impressed how professionally everything was done. It was just amazing. Um, so yeah, we, we've we've continued that and and Joe Finlay had um, he was already working with Bob Taylor and the STRI um, and they were doing breeding bird surveys. They had a, a five year master plan for all the ecology. Um, and that's something that we've we've continued. Uh, you know, the change, as you say, you had to find some extra space to uh, fill the gap, that closing holes 17 and 18 on the Dunluce um, necessitated. So I, I'm just wondering, I mean, two of my favourites on the Valley were definitely the two holes that were lost. Yeah. Uh, unfor- unfortunately, two original cold holes, a short par four, if I recall, and a yeah. longish sweeping par three. I will stick up a couple of pictures just for for posterity of the of the old holes. There is something something that I, I like looking back on every now and then. But just in terms of that that space that that you used, or what were the main challenges in relation to the sort of construction of seven and eight? I'd imagine there was a lot of marum grass to transplant and and harvest and sort of keep in 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 relatively decent condition while you while you were sort of. Betwixt and between, in terms of in terms of shaping, and then and then and then laying the laying the stuff back out. What do you remember specifically in relation to the challenges that that sort of seven and eight would have thrown up? Um, I think, as you said, you've you've hit the nail on the head. It was it was trying to find a home for all the material that came off. Um, 
So it, I remember that it took a long time to strip uh, the eighth because the eighth was just all marum, marum grass, uh, kind of low lying, well, sort of low dunes. Mm-hmm. Um, so as each other part of the project was being finished, uh, the the marum grass would go from there to to then sort of create the rough around other areas. Um, so the, the eighth fairway wasn't really cleared until most of the other work was complete, really. Um, I'm trying to remember dates now, but I think seven and eight, particularly the eighth, was one of the later things done in the project. And those holes opened June 2017, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So in terms of the construction and shaping process, uh, Graham. Did you use a main contractor and have some some Mackenzie and Ebert shapers, or how how did the the mechanics of of personnel on site pan out? I suppose um, I can't remember. It might have been prior to me starting Royal Port Rush, or just afterwards. Um, we were looking to appoint a contractor. Um, so Abbotts uh, had done the irrigation system in two thousand and nine. They'd installed a full system. So That's a M- MJ Abbott, yeah. MJ Abbott's, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, I remember we we felt that it would be a good idea to keep sort of continuity there. So they did the irrigation contract uh-huh. uh, for all the changes, and then um, I think we had we had looked at a few different companies, um, and there were some other pretty big projects happening at that time, Turnberry. Mm-hmm. Um, so the feeling was that some of the other companies were quite stretched. Mark Martin Ebert had done quite a lot of work with First Golf, Marcus Terry, um, at the time, and you know an architect to be quite particular about which shaper they'll work with. Um, so Martin sort of guided us towards First Golf, um, and Marcus Terry is unbelievable on on the machine. Uh, the shaping, the quality of it was incredible. Um, so we went with First Golf and MJ Abbotts. Okay, and was is he uh, is he a dozer preferer or is he a preferer of diggers and whatnot or what's no. his, what's his implement of choice or, or a bit of both? Excavator, okay. excavator. He did the. In fairness, he did the eighth fairway with a dozer mm-hmm. um, in one weekend, which I just couldn't get my head round. And once he completed it, it didn't need much alteration at all. Really, it was. Um, Great, great job. Really good. Was that that plateau, as it were, for the eighth? Was that there naturally, or was is that was was there some fill involved there? I could never quite figure out how much work was done. Always the mark of a of a, of, a, of a good bit of uh, good bit of finishing. But where the where the green is? Uh, well, where, where the green is, and and more particularly to the drive area, and that sort of fall off to the left. That was always there. Okay. Um, it was kind of masked by the, the the small dunes that were where the 8th fairway is now mm-hmm. um, and to be honest it was really hard to actually picture a fairway being there mm-hmm. the first time I walked it Martin Ebert had pegs through it and you're up and down up and down <laughs> over these dunes and it was kind of hard to actually picture anything being there I think there was uh-huh. a drop off to the left yeah because that went down towards the 5th green on the valley yeah um and then in short of the green, I think there, there was a dip. Uh-huh. Um, but I can't remember exactly with the way the ground was shaped at that time. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in terms of comparing 
the new 7 and 8 versus the old 17 and 18. Uh, you've a pair of much stronger holes now. And obviously it's given you the opportunity to utilize 17, what was the old 17 and 18, in a, in a different manner. Yeah. Yeah, we've, um, we've mown out six little par three holes. Okay. Which have been really popular with the members. It's quite flat. Um, some of our elderly members will go out there and, and play a few holes together. Um, and it's quite a good little academy for some of the, some of the kids as well. Brilliant. You love to see, see, see that, to be honest with you. Uh, I believe we, we may have a short course coming in Royal Dublin in the not too distant future with a bit of, with a bit of luck. But I think we've got to move a road first of all before we start to start doing anything else. Oh, I'm just interested to sort of get a feel, Graham, for how long you actually had machinery on site and heavy metal on site. I mean, obviously the, the project started, as you said, in 2015. Yeah. I believe you may have had machinery on site up to nearly the, the start of the of the event in 2019 is that uh, is that a fair reflection uh, yes <laughs> um i suppose we were we, we had we had machines on the course through the winter maybe starting in october and finishing in april late april maybe may mm-hmm. um that was a general sort of thing for a couple of years and then yeah i think the last machine Last ex- excavator left site in May 2019. Mm-hmm. Uh, we sort of built some some spectator paths a little bit last minute. Um, but yeah, that left it a little bit tight. <laughs> uh, wouldn't like to do that again, really. Well, you know what? Hindsight is is twenty twenty. You got out the gap. That's all that matters. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> Listen, the 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 tension between frivolous architectural features and functionally maintainable aesthetic shaping is always a challenge for the architect, the shaper, and indeed you, the course manager. I'm assuming that you probably had some degree of input into what was and what was not maintainable in the medium to long term. Uh, yes, um, probably. Well, there was a few things. In fairness, Martin Ebert was actually quite, he was quite easy to work with. Um, He's um, he has a sort of a, a vision, and he, he can be he can be quite stubborn, <laughs> which um, I think is probably a, a bonus as well if you're an architect. Um, but no, he was always willing to listen. If there was something that we felt was a bit too steep, then he would be happy enough to adjust it, unless it was a feature that he felt was really really necessary. Mm-hmm. And certainly from a, um, a posterity perspective, Big Nelly was a feature of the old 17th hole, which yep. uh, I believe you have a little Nelly now on the on the seventh. Maybe not quite as big as Big Nelly, but, but not insignificant in its own way. No, I suppose in comparison to all of our other bunkers, it's, uh, it is huge, um, but not quite as big as the original Nelly, no. Yeah, yeah. Um, quite a nice feature. I've, I've been in there once. It's not a place to be. No. <laughs> well, you're not going to make the green from there. You certainly aren't. I can, I, And it usually plays into the second wind. That's why I ended up in there in the first place, I suspect. But um, listen, obviously, in terms of your Open Championship prep, uh, Royal Portrush hosted the 2018 Boys uh, Amateur Championship. How useful was it to get a, small, a slight, slightly smaller trial run under your belt some 12 months or so before the 148 came along? 
It was um, it was great actually. It was good. Um, I suppose it highlighted a few little challenges that we had, um, and I think yeah, an amateur event like that, it's actually really nice. It's quite relaxed, but at the same time, you have to sort of deliver the golf course to a certain standard. Um, we kind of experienced similar weather to what we did in 2019. We got torrential downpours prior to the boys' event, and then we got a sort of flush of growth, which made green speeds a bit challenging. Uh, and then we had the same again in 2019. Um, be it 2018, we were able to to triplex cut, which was which was a much quicker setup. Um, but then obviously 2019 we had more people. Um, the, I suppose our our main challenge was just getting green speed really because it was so wet. We had mm-hmm. we had thunder, uh, thunder and lightning, rain the Wednesday before practice day. So we got 35 millimeters of rain in an hour, and we had 65 millimeters that day. Graham, it never rains in Ireland. Never rains in Ireland. <laughs> it was probably quite fitting, really, wasn't it? <laughs> Rain, wind, cold, warm. Yeah, it sounds like an Irish summer's day. Yeah. <laughs> if, you don't like the wet, if you don't like the forecast, just wait an hour. <laughs> <laughs> Come here. I'm just interested to know, obviously, the RNA are, and their different departments are obviously heavily involved in staging and open. How many of those particular departments would have required your involvement, shall we say, in some capacity, sort of pre-open. There's there a lot of meetings and and conversations and and additional stuff over and above actually overseeing the guys and making sure the sports turf is as it should be. Uh, yes, lots. Um, I suppose from at that time that there was um, some of the RNA staff would would be involved in spectators spectator movement, um, hospitality areas. Some of them would be involved with the contractors and the build and the DREG. Um, some of them would be involved with the communications side, the fibre, um, TV areas, um, uh, sort of broadcasting area, which was down at the East Strand Car Park. Um and then there was the course setup guys, there was the agronomy guys, there was the ecology guys. Um, and I can't even think of all of them. Uh-huh. <laughs> but then there was there's other sides like transport, um, where Wilma, the general manager at the time, she would have dealt with a lot of the, they have sort of a gold, silver and bronze um, meetings, which would be more higher level, um, be involved with sort of emergency services and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really get involved in all that side, which to be honest, I was glad I had enough. I had enough. On my plate. It sounds like, yeah. And, and Wil- Wilma, of course, a very capable lady. Yes. Um, who's, who's, who's since retired uh, or certainly not retired. She's moved elsewhere. Yes. I believe she's, she's working in sport NI amongst other things. Yeah. And John Lawler is obviously up there now. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope I hope Wilma's doing well if she's if she's listening. I, I have had the pleasure on a few occasions. A very formidable lady. <laughs> yeah, she, uh, she's formidable. Uh, she usually gets what she wants. Um, she uh, she's a real character. I I was I was talking to her about an hour ago actually. 
Um, she's doing really well. Um, she's sort of got some other work uh, that she's doing and she's keeping busy and she's involved with the Irish Lynx Initiative now. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's doing a lot of the administration and membership stuff for that as well. She likes to be busy doing things. Well, Fintan Brennan's obviously, uh, obviously signed up uh, the, 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 absolutely the right person to do that for, for him. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, in terms of the infrastructure build, um, can you give us some idea on build timeframes associated with grandstands, tented villages, TV cranes, concession stands, etc.? And maybe what considerations are required when you cover grass with infrastructure such as that? What sort of preventative maintenance or, in fact, what sort of, of maintenance has to happen to those areas after breakdown afterwards? I guess I'm really trying to get a feel for the sort of headaches you had prior to the stuff going up, while it was up, and as it was coming back down. Yeah, um, so the first contractors come on site at the start of April. Okay. Uh, they're the grandstand guys. Um and I suppose the first thing for us is just checking where all of our irrigation pipes are. Um, and that's an ongoing thing through throughout the whole build, really. Um, and it, it, at first, it starts off quite slow. They start with a smallish team. They're doing the grandstands. Um, it's quite easy. And then the more contractors come on site, the more it, it sort of becomes... Uh, almost a full-time job for one of our guys working with them. So um, Chris Calvin, who looks after our irrigation system, he kind of dealt with a lot of the contractors, um, took a lot of pressure off me um, because you're you're constantly going around checking, um, checking there's no irrigation pipes where they're driving in their big pins and anchors and things. Um, they use big water tanks to anchor down the TV towers and all that sort of thing. Um, And even just getting them around the golf course without making any mess or damage in the place because they don't know the site. Uh, Uh And it's really important that you can assist them to get around without causing any damage Um, because it'd be really easy to just take a wrong turn and next thing you're on the green or something. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) Uh, no, it worked really well. Um, I suppose in terms of in terms of reparation afterwards, it's uh, the grandstands. The, the derig happens much quicker than the build. Uh, mm-hmm. Contractors maybe have somewhere else they have to be, another mm-hmm. uh, event or something. So they the RNA have their own site managers, so they're responsible for all the health and safety. Uh, contractors, um, anything the contractors do really, the the site managers take responsibility for, uh, and they're really strict. Um, so that's really useful for us. I suppose the only thing, uh, screws, uh, the, the, the sort of shackles that they put the fencing together with, things like that just get dropped by by accident and and left in the grass. Uh, Uh. Of course, our moors tend to find them. Um, That was probably the worst thing for us. We had screws. Uh, We were catching with our moors for maybe a year afterwards. 
Um, that's like really unhelpful. <laughs> Our mechanic was um, nearly in tears. I can imagine. They said the sharpening machine was getting uh, getting getting used uh, yeah. used uh, in in the red, as it were, in terms of just c- consistently. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that was probably the worst bit for us. The because of the nature of the ground at Royal Portrush, we're you know we're really undulating, um, which makes it great for viewing for spectators and things, but for building grandstands and walking platforms and towers and all sorts of stuff, often they'll have to dig the footings into the turf. Um, so we had thousands of holes left afterwards. Um, they're only small, they're only maybe two feet square, but when there's thousands of them, yeah, that took a wee while to repair all of that. Yeah. Um, and I guess just if we sort of take a look quickly at tournament week, I'm just sort of interested to know how many staff and volunteers uh, you had at your disposal in 2019. Yeah, uh, we had we had 30 of our own staff. Uh, some of those were seasonals from Australia. Um, some of them were part-timers. Um, and then we had a total of 58 for the week of the Open. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... The RNA will organise every open, the each kind of open venue will have the opportunity to send a greenkeeper to help out at whatever venue it might be hosting that year. Uh, so we had, I think we had eight or nine open venue volunteers. Um, so they come for two weeks, generally speaking. Um, and then there were other guys who were, There'll be superintendents of golf courses locally. They would have come and helped for just the four days or maybe the week. Um, so, yeah, we had 58 in total, which is probably quite a big number uh, for an Open Championship or an event in UK or Ireland. Um, but as you mentioned, you never know what the weather's going to do here. And you have visions of squeegees in 2015 i think it was and you just hope that you don't get that but then you kind of you want to make sure that you've got enough people that are that can cope with something like that as well i think if squeegees are part of the lexicon for 2025 you might need 116 people (laughs) (laughs) so hopefully that does not transpire in that particular way but look at um obviously the event itself uh we had uh if memory serves we got a winner that the crowd seemed pretty happy about just wondering did you get to share a pint with shane after his win uh no, he did. He came over for a photograph um, after his victory. Uh, we were still kind of all around the green and he came over and got his picture taken with all the greenkeepers. Uh, what a winner. Like, couldn't have written it. Uh, played absolutely amazing golf. Um, I was supposed to go to the clubhouse afterwards, uh, drinks reception with the winner. Uh, I went and locked the greenkeeper's sheds and I had a set of RNA waterproofs I had to hand back. Uh, so I did that. It was chucking it down with rain. And then I spotted my wife and kids walking down the road. They'd been there all day. Uh-huh. Uh, so I just picked them up and went home. <laughs> uh, you, you, you had a better offer. And <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm, I'm by, by the sounds of it, he hightailed out of there pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, I if, think. If, he... if, if, if the video is of him back in Dublin later on that evening or in, anything to go by. Yeah, f- fair enough, really. You win the Open, you're going to want to enjoy it with your friends aren't you 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, I, I came across something back in February 2022 that I just quickly wanted to mention, uh, specifically Storm Franklin. High tides lashed White Rocks Beach, which is obviously situated directly below the fifth green and the sixth tee box on the Dillon News course at Royal Portrush. Yeah. Um, again, I will post a couple of links to uh, some Twitter posts. Just wondering, was there much damage done? There seemed to be quite a bit of exposed uh, rock armour uh, after that particular event. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, really the full length of the beach from White Rocks to East Strand Car Park uh, mm-hmm. There was a big bite taken out of the bottom of the dune. Um, the the sort of large dune near the sixth tee. Uh, normally, at the end of the summer, that dune would have a, a sort of a bulge on the nose of it. Um, usually, over the course of the summer, the sand blows up that dune. You can see it on a windy day; it's kind of travelling up and sitting there. And then, often in the winter time, you'll get a high tide, and it'll take a little bit off the bottom, and then it'll it flattened the dune off a bit, but no, it took a it took a serious chunk out of the bottom of that dune and all the way along to the East Strand Car Park. I don't know how many don't know how many millions of tons it might must have taken, but um, yeah, we we lost a big chunk of the dune, but also it had eaten in at the edge of the rock armor that we have behind the fifth green. Mm-hmm. So that was installed in the eighties. Um, it was a, a huge storm which had taken a massive chunk off the dune. Joe Finlay had told me that the, the irrigation pipe that goes around the green, uh, some of that was hanging in midair at the back of the green. Jesus. Uh, yeah, so they'd had a huge job. Um, and I think they'd got funding from golf clubs all over the world to complete the work. Uh-huh. Uh, so there's a small set, section of rock armour behind the green. And then... At the end of the rock armour under the six tees, there's a small section of uh, gabion baskets. Uh-huh. Um, now, the gabion baskets, just they just end, really. Um, and at the side of that where it was where we were losing some of the dune. Uh-huh. And we were in danger of the, the sea getting in behind the gabion baskets and exposing uh-huh. that. And then, and then that's when you start to lose your rock armour as well. So what, what did you have to do to try and rectify that particular uh, input from nature? Um, we haven't, we just let nature take its course, which okay, uh, just being sort of hopeful that you're not going to get another storm and then it's going to cause more damage. Um, it did fill into a point we've had a little bit more erosion, but nothing like the storm that we had. Um but the club have been in a really, really long process of trying to get planning and um, complete some some extra small work just to tie that those gabion baskets into the dune so that the sea, okay. sea can't get in behind it and cause more damage. So you've been okay in terms of tidal erosion uh, since uh, since Storm Franklin, at least anyway. Yeah, this winter hasn't been too bad, but it's really it's just it's just potluck, really, isn't it? <laughs> Mm-hmm. You know, you can get you can get a, a bad storm out of nowhere and then you're uh, you're looking at sort of years for that to repair itself. Uh, if we move on, Graham, to your blogging and social media career. <laughs> I, I obviously came across you when you moved from Sligo to Port Rush initially. 
However, it wasn't long before your regular dispatches from the Green Keeping Compound at Royal Port Rush were regular reading material over a cup of tea. Your periodic dispatches from the Causeway Coast were educational and informative. I'm wondering, was writing the blog something you enjoyed? And will it be making a reappearance as you ramp up for the Open in 2025? Um, it was something I enjoyed. I, I suppose I had the idea of starting it really early on. Um, there's a big percentage of our members are not from Port Rush, and they maybe only make it up at the weekend. And our greenkeepers are out on the golf course doing uh, lots of work during the week. Um, and then I suppose... I kind of thought maybe the members wonder what we actually do and if we're doing something, a project on the course, how it's actually completed because they're not maybe there every day to see it. Um, and I think I think I will start it again. I'd, I'd stopped it because the club were doing a new website and a few different reasons, but I was to start writing a piece in the website. Um, so... I would hope to start it again. I think the members seem to really like it. And I used to get a lot of comments from the members that they enjoyed reading it and it was informative and, and all the rest of it. So, Well, I can assure you that the wider golf tragic world also was reading it and enjoyed oh. it. So. <laughs> As and when you get back to it, there'll be, uh, there'll be plenty of people like me with bated breath waiting oh. to, uh, to, to, to get the next uh, installments. Oh. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Look, I recently happened upon the extensive Mackenzie and Ebert 2022 year in review document and noticed that there are some plans afoot to further refine the Dunluce course while also making changes to the Valley course. What can you tell us about these refinements and changes uh, in the lead up to 2025? Um, I suppose in terms of the Dunluce course, that's more or less done now. Um, and as I, as I said, it's not they're not massive changes, but I think um, I think the little bits and pieces will make the golf course play better. I suppose the most significant one for an open, we've built a new championship tee on seven. Um, a little bit further back, probably adds 12, 15 yards, maybe. Um, and the the sort of the wee Nelly bunker that was the feature down the right hand side. Uh, I think it was. 285 to the face of the that bunker from the championship tee. And Martin Ebert, he, he said he couldn't believe people were just flying it. No problem at all. He said that the majority of the golfers did that. Um, but it was 300 yards to carry the bunker on the flat. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Um, and I suppose the wind kind of swirled a lot and sometimes that hole was playing downwind, but Martin Ebert said it was like some of the players didn't even give it a thought. Um, so, so that was partly why I think he wanted to build a new tee a little bit further back. Mm -hmm. uh, that's probably the most significant change, I think. Um, that's very, very small alteration to the first green uh, and the mm -hmm. first approach. Is probably another little change, but I don't think I don't think golfers would notice it unless they play the golf course all the time. Okay, and the valley, you've got a, a few bits and pieces to do down there as well. Um, potentially, there's some there's some plans being drawn up, um, and they're yet to go to the members for approval. So um, some of the work. Look, some of the plans look really exciting, um, 
but I suppose it just depends on the membership. So I can't really probably say too much about No, no, for sure, for sure. Look, I, I, it's, it, it always amuses me, you know, the, the Valley Course and perhaps the Anzi at Royal County Down, they never quite get the kudos they deserve yeah. because they're slap bang beside the Dunluce and the, and the big course at Royal County Down. I played the Anzi last year, which is a, always a delight. And I always, when I'm up in, in Port Rush, I always make sure that I play the Valley because it's just, it's nice as a warm up or a counterpoint to the big course as opposed to getting not quite beaten to death, uh, but particularly when it's, when it's, when it's windy there, you can, you can have a, have a particularly inclement day, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, the Valley is just so good and, and probably relatively underrated because of where it sits. Yeah. I love the Valley. I play the Valley most Sundays. Um, we get a staff membership of Rathmore. Um, so, from yeah, I would say most of the greenkeepers play golf, um, and we would we would a lot of us would play the valley on a Sunday in competition. We love it, mm-hmm. um, and there's a lot of the Royal Port Rush members would play the valley regularly as well, um, more than there used to be. It used to be the it used to be the ladies would play on the valley and the men would play on the list, but it's kind of becoming a bit more modernized i suppose there's lots of ladies going up and playing dunluce and lots of men uh-huh. down playing the valley and it's funny listening to people who um likes of stephen watson uh with, uh-huh. he started a couple of years ago going down to the valley and, and having a game in the valley and he'd be talking about it and saying why did i not do this before why didn't i play the valley very often before just for people that, that may be listening internationally, Stephen Watson is a BBC Northern Ireland uh, sports journalist, uh, sort of specialises in golf and rugby and various other things, but he's a, he'd be one of the higher profile members of the Royal <laughs> Rush. Would that be fair? Yeah, I think so. Himse- him, himself and Mr. Nesbitt. <laughs> um, but yeah, you, you, all the members would talk like that. They, they maybe hardly would play it and then they'd go down there and then they would say, why don't, why don't we do this more often? Um, so there's there's much more of an exchange of uh, golfers on the two different courses now. That's good to hear. Mm. That's good to hear. You'll be glad to hear, Graham. We're down to the final two questions. All my guests get asked the same final two questions. Firstly, I'd like you to nominate five bucket list courses that you would like to play for the first time, maybe, or they may have made a big impact on you previously, and perhaps you want to get back to sample them again. So, uh, sorry, you had no advance notice on this, so it's uh, it's it's it, the, the 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 light is on and the and the, and the pressure is on. But I'm sure you can come up with five uh, five bucket list courses. You can pick less, you can pick more. It's up to you. You can probably hear the cogs turning. Mm-hmm. Um, Cypress Point. Okay. Um, so somewhere you've played or somewhere you'd like to play? Oh, sorry, somewhere I would love to play. Okay, you haven't played Cypress Point. That's fine. Okay. I met the superintendent. Um, over at the the show in Orlando, so okay. Someday I'll I'll go over and I'll play there. Well, at least you. you it, so there is a way of get you getting there. That's great. Well, I'm happy hoping to, so. happy to hear that. <laughs> okay. Well, you need to get in the plane first of all, I suppose. That's yeah. the that that that's the biggest driver. Um, where else? Uh, I'm probably going to be really boring and say um, I'm going to say Pine Valley. I'd love to play Pine Valley. Mm-hmm. It's probably the same. Golf courses other people are talking about, but um, where else? Um, I'd like to play Cape, Cape Wickham. 
Mm-hmm. That looks amazing. Um, I played Royal Melbourne and Kingston Heath before, but I'd love to play them again. Mm-hmm. And I never played Metropolitan. Okay. I worked and lived there, and I never played Metropolitan. I'd love to go and play there. Well, if you if you get an opportunity to play Metropolitan with uh, Michael Clayton, who's a member there, I think that's probably the best uh, the best person to bring you out there because you just get get to listen to Clayton and absorb everything that he has does has to say from a golf course architecture perspective. I, actually, I never asked you. I mean, obviously, have you over the years developed an interest in golf course architecture? Or was that something that 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 you that came to you early or 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 le- a little bit later on through the the greenkeeping process? I think I've always had an interest. I wouldn't say I'm an expert, and uh, I wouldn't say I'm very knowledgeable, but um, I I do like to have an input um, and. I suppose some of the, the little changes that we've made over the golf course this winter have been maybe started with me. I'm not sure. Um, but yeah, I definitely have an interest. So uh, the final question relates to golf book recommendations. What two books would you think and uh, would you recommend to any golfer looking to augment their golfing library? Oh dear. I'm not a huge reader and my wife's an absolute bookworm. Um, okay. I kind of read a book when I'm on holidays and mm-hmm. um, golf books. Uh, Spirit of St Andrews, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I read a I read a book quite recently. It was a caddy, uh, his caddy in America, the loop or something like that, or looping. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, Practical Greenkeeping by Jim Arthur. That's always a good recommendation. <laughs> yeah, I, I even have a copy of that. Sorry, that's terrible. Um, yeah, I'm not a massive reader. I should be, and I, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed. Graham, that's quite all right. <laughs> you can't be good at everything. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, on, on behalf of our listeners, Graham, I'd like to thank you for your time and insight. I'd like to wish you and the team of the Golf Club continued success and look forward to my next visit to Portrush with anticipation and onwards then to see if the Paddies can win back-to-back opens at Portrush. Go easy. Thanks very much, Shane. All the best. Thank you. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at FirmanFastGolf. Please continue to like, subscribe, and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.